Well, this weekend at the men's retreat, we've been looking at the first verses of Peter's first epistle. And I'd like to speak again from that chapter this morning. So I'd invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we'll just read from the the beginning verses here. 1 Peter 1 and verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, But believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Well, these these first paragraphs of Peter's letter are just so rich and encouraging and and helpful. Uh, the first couple verses, it's just Peter uh, you know, describing those he's writing to. He's writing to these ordinary Christians, these little congregations of believers scattered across uh, a region we know as Asia Minor. And, and then in verses uh, 3 and 4, he talks about the reasons these Christians have for great rejoicing in God. And, and, he, and he mentions these three things. One, that they're born again. It says in verse 3, also that they have a living hope. And thirdly, that they have a heavenly inheritance in verse 4. And in verse 5, he talks about their, their certainty of reaching that heavenly inheritance. He says, how can we know that we're going to make it to heaven? It's because we're kept, we're protected by the power of God through faith all the way until we get home to heaven. And in verses 6 and 7, he talks about the trials that the saints experience along the way and how these hard times in our life are actually for our good, that we're like gold in the crucible, being tested, being purified through the trials of our lives. And then we arrive at verse 8 here, which will be the focus of our message for today. Though you have not seen Him... You love Him, and though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. 
On the one hand, these, these words are real delight to talk about. I mean, this is one of the most special, thrilling verses in the Bible that we have before us. On the other hand, it's kind of intimidating to talk about it. You think, well, I don't want to talk about such glorious things in a, in a half-hearted, ho-hum, kind of lukewarm way. I mean, this is special. This ought to be special to talk about verse 8 this morning. The difficulty of verse 8 is not so much in understanding what Peter means here. I mean, Peter's words are pretty plain. The difficulty for us is, is in applying these words to our own experience. You know, comparing my experience as a Christian to what's described here in verse 8. That's, that's what I find challenging. Um, the language is just so strong here, isn't it? Though you do not see Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. I mean, do we know in our experience what Peter's talking about here? Or, or if Peter knew me, if Peter knew me, if he hung out with me this week, would he say this about me? Would he say, yeah, that's what Nathan's like. He's, he's greatly rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory. It really challenges us, doesn't it, in thinking about our experience here. It's like, it's like this verse just kind of shines a spotlight into our hearts and causes us to think about that, that heart-level relationship between me and the Lord. You know, how is it between my soul and the Savior? Do I love the Lord? Like this, do I do I have this joy in the Lord that's described here? Now, before going further, let's just remind ourselves of who it is that Peter is talking about here in verse eight. Who, who is he, who is he writing to? Who is he speaking about? Uh, well, he's writing this letter to to ordinary Christians in in these ordinary little churches. Of Asia Minor. He's not writing a letter to other apostles. He's not speaking at a pastor's conference. He's just writing to ordinary Christians like us. He's writing to them and he's, and he's describing their life experience. He's saying, I know this is how it is for you guys as ordinary Christians. And he's quite personal about it, isn't he? He keeps using the word you here. Though you have not seen him, you love Him, though you do not see Him now, and you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. He's confident these words are true of these Christians that he's writing to. He says it's true of you. I know it's this way with you guys here. Now, now Peter did not know these people personally. I mean, probably maybe he had traveled through that region before, but he probably did not personally know most of the Christians that are going to be reading this letter. And so, so the question is, well, how did, how did Peter know? How did Peter know it was like this for them? How did he know these people were rejoicing with joy, inexpressible and full of glory? Well, I think the only answer that works is that, that Peter knew these folks were Christians, and, he, and he's simply describing normal Christianity. He's describing the way Christians are. Christians do love the Lord. Christians do have great joy in the Lord. And so Peter can say confidently, if these folks he's writing to 
far away, even if he's never met him, if they're Christians, then this surely is their experience. He can say, yes, I know. I know how it is for you guys. You do have this great overflowing love and joy in the Lord Jesus. He's not talking either about just some special experience they had in the past either. You know, like, like some really special thing happened 20 years ago and he's pointing back to that. But if you look, the, the tenses of the verbs are all present tense. He's talking about how it is for them right now. You rejoice right now with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So, so surely God's word is, is saying the same thing to us. He's saying this is us. This is a description of true Christianity here. The normal Christian experience. Well, verse 8 talks about three things. Three major virtues that all Christians have. It talks about love and faith and joy. And that will be our outline this morning. These three things. From this verse. First, it talks about love. He says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. You love him. The verse says, These Christians love him. Now, who's the him? Who's the him that we that we love so much? Well, it's clear from verse seven, the end of verse seven, he's talking about Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not visible to us now. We don't see him. It says in verse seven, he will be revealed in the end, but we love him right now. We love Jesus Christ. Oh, this is a big truth. Ron was just talking about it, wasn't he? Christianity isn't just learning truths. It isn't just keeping rules. It isn't just doing rituals. It isn't just joining an institution. It's not just being part of a, of a system, of a thing. But it's Him. It is loving this person, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, it is knowing and loving Jesus. The Christian is delighted with the Lord Jesus. He, he's full of love. For Jesus, his heart is bursting over Jesus Christ. A Christian can take the book of Song of Solomon, this this poetry of just over-the-top, passionate love. Christian can go through that verse by verse and meditate on how this can be applied to my relationship with the Lord. That we love the Lord in that kind of, of strong, intense way. You know, if... If a person says they're a Christian, says they've been saved, and said they have, say, say they have faith in Christ, but they do not love the Lord. They just don't love the Lord. They just don't care much about the person of Jesus. Boy, you have to conclude something bad is the matter there. Maybe they're just deceived about the whole thing. You know, when we sing these hymns, you know, hymns about, oh, how I love Jesus. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. We're not just, we're not just saying words that we, we think the Lord would like to hear. But we really are expressing our experience as Christians. We really do love the Lord Jesus. He is all the world to me. And, and we love Him not just out of the out of the religion compartment of ourselves, but we love Him with our whole being, don't we? I mean, the Bible uses that, that common language, loving the Lord our God with all 
our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Our whole person devoted to loving the Lord Himself. And we love Him more than we love anybody else in the world. Any other relationship, right? Jesus said those things about you've you've got to hate father and mother and, and wife and children and siblings and so on. He says, he says, if he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So we love him. We we don't just love him in addition to others. We love him more than we love other people. In this world, this is the supreme relationship to us. The Apostle Paul puts it real bluntly there in in 1 Corinthians 16, right at the end of the letter. He says, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Pronounces a curse. If you don't love the Lord, you're under a curse, he says. And, And when you love Jesus like that, when you love Jesus more than anybody else, I mean, when you, when you love Jesus with your whole being, why, that's surely going to be real obvious, don't you think? Don't you think people are going to be able to tell that you love Jesus like that? There's going to, there's going to be a lot of ways it's, it's going to be seen. I mean, one thing Jesus said is, he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So that's one way we can show that we love the Lord Jesus. That is real practical. Uh, if, you're going, if you love the Lord Jesus... You're going to spend time with Him. You're going to want to be with Him. You're going to want to to read His Word. You're going to want to pray to Him. If you love Him, surely you'd want to spend time with Him. You'd want to learn all you can about Him. Uh, If if you love the Lord Jesus, you're going to want to talk about Him. And when when you love somebody, you, you tend to talk about Him. They tend to come up in conversation pretty often. And that's how it is for Christians. I mean, when Christians get together... We want to talk about the Lord. Now, now, lost religious people, they can talk about church stuff. They can talk about stuff happening in their church. They can talk about right-wing political issues. They can talk about stuff that's kind of spiritual. But the real Christian, his greatest delight is talking about the Lord himself, talking about the gospel, talking about the, what the Lord is to me, what he's done in my life. It's because we love him. We want to talk about him. And if you love the Lord Jesus, you, you want to introduce him to other people also, right? We do, we do want to share the gospel. We want people to know this Lord Jesus for themselves. We, we're not keeping him to ourselves. We want to share the gospel with others in witnessing. And, and the verse says that we love him even though we have not seen him. Though we have not seen him, you love him this much. And what, what makes this interesting is, is that Peter here is writing. And you remember, Peter was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. So Peter had seen Jesus physically. I mean, he'd seen him day after day for three years. He's right there with Jesus. But he's writing to Christians that, that haven't seen Jesus, that weren't there. And, and basically what he's saying to them is, he's saying that's no problem. He's saying that's not going to be a hindrance toward your love for Jesus. You shouldn't think that, well, because I didn't see Jesus like Peter did, I'm, I'm not going to love him as much. Peter says, I, no, that, that isn't going to be the case. Though you do not see him, you have not seen him, yet you love him. You love him like this. 
the same way Peter loves him. And, I mean, it's just clear from this that this love for Jesus we're talking about, this has to be supernatural, right? This has to be a miraculous kind of love. I mean, we have this saying, we have this saying, out of sight, out of mind, right? And, I mean, if, when, some, when something's kind of off the scene, when somebody's far away, it's, you, you tend over time not to think less and less of them and, and care less. I mean, probably all of us have some, some relatives in our extended family that live on the other side of the country, and you never see them. They never come to the family get-togethers and stuff. I don't think much about them. I don't love them very much. I don't care very much about them. They're just kind of, they're just kind of a way out there. Maybe you see them on Facebook or something. But think of this, think of this, the person of Jesus Christ, the one whom we love the most, whom we love with our whole being, whom we love more than any other relationship with anybody else, is a person we've never seen. We've never seen, we've not even seen a blurry photo of Jesus. We've never touched Him physically, right? We've never never heard His voice audibly, at least I haven't. We've never smelled Him. We've never, any of our senses, had any connection with the Lord Jesus. And yet, for the Christian, for the ordinary Christians Peter's writing to, he can say, though you do not see Him, you love Him. You love Him like this. It has to be a supernatural thing, right? This is not, this is not a normal thing to love someone like this whom we've never, never seen. But that's how it is with the Christian. Well, so how can this be? How can this work? How can you love somebody in this way? And that, that leads us to, to the next thing in the verse, and that is faith. So the first is love and then, then faith. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him. Believe, faith. That's that's the explanation. We're able to love the unseen Christ because of faith. It is faith that makes Christ real to us right now, real to our souls. And and this, this thing of faith is kind of a thread that runs through these verses that, uh, that we read earlier. I mean, verse 5 talks about uh, being protected by the power of God through faith. And, uh, and then verse, verse 7 talks about the proof of your faith being more precious than gold. Verse 8 here, you believe in Him. Verse 9 says, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. It's, it's faith... It's faith that reaches out to unseen things and makes them real to us. It's faith that that reaches out thousands of years into the past or thousands of years to the future or reaches up to things in heaven and gets hold of those things and brings them back to the present and makes them real to you right now so that you can rejoice in them and, and love those things Right now, to me, that's what Hebrews 11.1 1 is talking about, where it says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It, it convicts you. It makes them real to you right now. It gets a hold of them, brings them in here close, brings them into our hearts so that we can see them, see the unseen things. And the Bible uses this kind of language, seeing the unseen things. Uh, A little further down there in Hebrews 11, it's talking about the faith of Moses. 
uh, back in the, in the Old Testament in Exodus. It says, By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. See, Moses' faith allowed him to see him who is unseen. That is God. Faith made the unseen God real to him, and he acted on that faith. Jesus, speaking to uh, Thomas after his resurrection, this is John 20, verse 29, he says to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. See, it's faith. It's faith that enables us to lay hold on a Christ that we've not seen, that makes the resurrection of Jesus real to us right now. Jesus says, you're blessed if you believe on him whom you've not seen. And then, uh, then maybe the best one, 2 Corinthians 4.18, he says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things not seen are eternal. So that's interesting language there, isn't it? He says, we look not at the things seen, but the things unseen. We're seeing the unseen things. We're looking at unseen reality. And we do that by faith. The Christian looks at unseen things. He loves an unseen Christ. How can a man living 2,000 years ago in a far-off place, in a strange culture to us, how can he so capture our hearts the answer is we do see him with eyes of faith. By faith, Christ is real to us. Christ is as real to us as, as, as any other thing we experience in this world, even more so. This Christian faith is obviously a supernatural thing. We just said that about Christian love, but it's true of Christian faith as well. It must be supernatural. It's a gift of God, right? Ephesians 2.8, this this, this faith you have is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. God's given us faith to make Christ real to us. So real that we would love Him so much as we do. Oh, there's no way, there's no way you can work up this kind of faith in your own carnal strength. There's no way you can reason your way through to this kind of faith in the Lord. It seems like about the best you could do uh, just in your, your own natural reason is, is maybe to get to the point where you say, well, I, I, think it's, I think it's probable, I think it's more likely than not that Jesus really lived or He really rose from the dead or something like that. But that, that kind of faith is not what we're talking about. We're talking about a faith that makes Christ real and certain and a present reality. You have a sense of a living Lord Jesus with you. He's alive. He's real. He's here. You know, that kind of faith. And that's something that God gives. It's a gift of God to us. And, and the Christian has that kind of certainty about everything in the gospel. We have that certainty that the Son of God, the Son of God took on human flesh. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfectly holy life in this, in this world. And then He laid down that life as a, as a sinless, perfect sacrifice on the cross. He paid for our sins there. He suffered the punishment we deserved. And then He rose from the dead on the third day. 
day in, in power, proving everything he'd said was true. And 40 days later, he sins back to heaven. He reigns there on the throne, and now he's saving sinners, everyone who would believe upon him. The Christian's been given faith to believe those things, to have a sense of certainty about those things. We, we can say like Paul, I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to keep what I've entrusted to him until that day. We know that. We've been given that faith in him. Faith has made Christ real to our hearts. Do you believe those things? Do you have that faith? When you do, when you do have that kind of faith, and when it leads you to love him, like we described earlier, then that leads to a third thing. And that is joy. Joy. Uh, it says, but you believe in Him and you rejoice greatly. You're, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The Christian life is a life of joy. We see three characteristics of joy just laid out here in order for us. The first is it's a great joy. It's a great joy. It says you greatly rejoice. Uh, we had this, actually the same language at the beginning of verse 6. If you look up the page, uh, verse 6, it says, In this you greatly rejoice. You greatly rejoice, even though now you've been distressed by various trials. It doesn't say we rejoice a little bit. We, we rejoice occasionally. It says we rejoice Greatly, great joy. Christian joy is not a subtle little thing. It's not just a little glimmer, a little, a little tingle of something, but it's, it's more like a big gushing fountain of joy that gets, gets implanted in your, in your soul when you get saved. And, and that joy is there springing up for the rest of your life with the Lord. It's a great joy. Sometimes it feels like you've been, you've been dunked into an ocean of joy. It's a joyous thing. It's great joy. It's big joy. It's what it says. And then it, the next thing it says is it's an inexpressible joy. Joy inexpressible. I'm, I'm more familiar with the King James here. It says joy unspeakable unspeakable it's it's the idea that it's it's so special it's so big it's so unique compared to all other joys it's hard to put into words it's just plumb hard to describe this joy that we're talking about as christians Uh, it's very hard have you tried to do this have you you know and you're witnessing you probably have you're trying to tell a lost person what it's like to be a christian how wonderful it is to know the lord and it's like your words seem so small (laughs) you have this big experience that you're trying to describe with fairly little words and you say this isn't this isn't it, it just isn't easy to describe is it so what what is the joy of being a Christian? What, how would you just is it like is it like a kid opening presents on Christmas morning? Is it that kind of joy? Well, you say a little bit like that. Is it is it like is it like the joy of your favorite sports team finally winning the championship? Well, a little bit. Is it like the joy of 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 your first baby being born? Maybe it's a little more like that kind of joy. But but those things those things fall so far short. 
The joy of a Christian is so much bigger, broader, deeper, sweeter, more satisfying, more lasting than any of the other joys of experience we have in this life. It is inexpressible. It's hard to put into words. Paul actually says something similar, talking about Christ in 2 Corinthians 9.15. He says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And, And he's either talking there about Jesus himself or about the gospel of Christ, but he calls it indescribable, an indescribable gift. It's like, well... But we can describe a lot about Christ. We can have you know, big systematic theologies that you know, go through all these step-by-step truths about the Lord Jesus. But at the end of all that, there is a wonder. There's a wonder in knowing the Lord, experiencing the Lord that is, that is indescribable. <laughs> that is, it's beyond what you can, what you can put in, in lines on paper. When you read when you read the uh, the you know the Christian biographies, the accounts of people that really knew the Lord and walked with the Lord, it's it's like you run into this as well. You know they're having these big experiences with God. God's really meeting with them, and yet their their words get so thin in describing. Okay, what what really went on in your heart during that? And they they can't tell you. They can't tell you all that much of what ha- they can describe the kind of the circumstances, the setting. Uh, maybe certain truths, certain scriptures that were a blessing to them, but they can't really describe the experiences they had with the Lord. They just say, well, the Lord met with me. I, I had a great joy in God this morning in prayer, whatever. It's hard to describe. Our words seem so weak. And, and you know, think of this. This is one of the great pleasures in Christian fellowship. This is why Christians love getting together with other Christians. Because here's some people. Here's some people that understand my joy. Here's some people that, that rejoice in the same things I do. And even though I can't describe it all that well, I can be with some other Christian I just, I just met. You know, we, there in Columbia, we've had a bunch of different Christians come through over the years that you don't know at all, and they just show up, and, and, and you get to talking, and, and there's, there's, you know, there's an immediate unity, a bond between believers, and, 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 and you're, you're happy in the Lord, right? There's, there, you, you see this... This, this glow on the face of this other Christian as they talk about the Lord, you realize, yeah, we have the same joy in the Lord. It's, it's indescribable, but you have experienced it and so have I. And it makes our fellowship so glorious. Well, it's a great joy. It's an inexpressible joy. And then the third thing we're told about it is it's a glorious joy. It says it is full of glory. Or literally, it is glorified um, Christian joy is focused on the most glorious things, isn't it? We're, we're joyful about the things that are most glorious. You know, the worldly person's joys are so small and pathetic in comparison. I mean, the things that the, that the world rejoices in. I mean, they, they rejoice in a bottle of beer. They rejoice in a mediocre sports team. They rejoice in, in, in the result of an election. They rejoice in, in their little crafts and hobbies and things. And it's not that all that stuff is bad. There's, you can take some, some pleasure in, the, in, in some of those things. 
But it's so small in comparison with the Christian's joy. Our joy, our joy is in the most glorious things. Our joy is in things that are transcendent in, in their magnificence. It's the splendor of the living God. It's the, it's the sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Son of God slain for sinners, laying down his life for his people. It's good for this life. It's good for all eternity. And, and we, we in our joy, we're anticipating glorious things that happen to us. We're anticipating a glorious resurrection at the end. We're anticipating the glory of heaven forever and ever. And in, in our joy, it's like we enter into the glories of heaven itself. Even while we're on this earth, we, we taste of those things. Uh, we talked yesterday with the men uh, just how these verses at, at the beginning of First Peter keep coming back to heaven, keep coming back to the glory. Uh, the end of verse 4, he talks about this heavenly inheritance that we're looking forward to. The end of verse 5, he talks about a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's looking forward to the return of Christ and the final glory at the end of the world. Uh, the end of verse 7, he talks about the praise and glory and honor that will come to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He keeps pointing to the glory. And then he says, you've got, you've got a glorious joy. It's like you, you have... You have <laughs> You get to taste, you get to experience that, that glory ahead of time. You get, you get to experience some of heaven right here on earth in the, the joy, this, this inexpressible, great, glorious joy that you have right now as a Christian. I, I think of that one hymn that says, The hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. Isn't that good? It's saying, it's saying there's all these sweet things of God that we experience right now on the way, on the way marching to Zion. We experience these sweet things of God. Before we get there, we're entering into glorious joy. We're experiencing glory even before we experience it fully when we arrive there. We're tasting some heavenly fruit along the way. It's a glorious joy, for sure. And, and so Peter is saying here in verse 8 that the normal, ordinary Christian life is characterized by these extremely wonderful things. Uh, a love for a Christ we cannot see, but we see Him by faith. And that makes Him wonderfully real. And that leads to this kind of joy unspeakable, indescribable, and full of glory. Now, I want you to think about something else here. And that is the connection between verses 6 and 7 and then verse 8 following. What, what are verses 6 and 7 about? We talked about it yesterday with, with the men, but you can see it in your Bibles. Verses 6 and 7 are all about trials. They're, they're about being distressed by various trials and being tested by fire um, and having your faith proved by going through hard times. You have that in verses 6 and 7. And then right on top of it, you have verse 8 talking about joy unspeakable and full of glory. How, how do you reconcile these two things? How do these two things go together? What is Peter doing here? Well, he has to be saying 
that Christians experience both things simultaneously. Both things are part of the Christian experience and both things can be going on at the same time. Yes, you can be distressed by various trials at the same time have joy unspeakable and full of glory in in the Lord. That, that even while you're going through some really crushing experience, the Christian is looking up to the Lord with tears in our eyes and experiencing the sweetness of Christ. I mean, it's the crushing trial that often drives us to the Lord, that makes us cling to the Lord like never before. You know, when all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. And you're, you're holding on to the Lord for dear life, and you're experiencing the joy of the Lord in ways you didn't before that trial came along. It can be both things right together. That's real life Christianity. I remember dear Bob Jennings saying that God had saved the best wine for last in his life. And he's talking about his, his experience. You know, he spent two years dying of cancer. And he said, I've had the sweetest joy with the Lord in these years of any time as a Christian. And that, that really fits with the experience of the saints. Uh, you know, Peter uh, himself puts these two things together. I mentioned verse 6 before. He talks about greatly rejoicing at the beginning of the verse. And then the end of the verse, he talks about being distressed by various trials. He puts them right together. Uh, he, he does this again in chapter 4. And in verse 13, he says, "...to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ..." Keep on rejoicing. <laughs> Isn't that something? To the degree you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. To the degree. It's like the more you're suffering with Christ, the more you're persecuted, you ought to rejoice that much more. There ought to be commensurate rejoicing along with suffering. The Apostle Paul, describing his own experience, he, he said, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He had lots of sorrows, lots of troubles, lots of things that burdened him, but he was always rejoicing. And, and it's that way with the Christian. One thing we can say for certain is that the Christian will never have a valid excuse for a lack of joy, right? I mean, these verses say we're, we're, supposed, to, we're supposed to be rejoicing even in hard times. So we never have a good excuse. We never say, well, I'd be joyful if it wasn't for this and that, and this isn't working too well. No, rejoice always, right? Again, I say rejoice. So we've tried to talk about this one very special verse of Scripture. So what do we say to these things? How, how, do, we, how do we respond to the Word of God? I want to say something to you that are not Christians for just a minute. I've been talking about Christians all this time, but you know, some of you here are certainly not Christians. I don't know all of you that well. One of the lies of the devil to non-Christians is, is this thought that, that the Christian life is miserable, that the Christian life is, is, is grim and hard. And if you become a Christian... You're going, to, you're going to lose all your joys, all the fun. It'll spoil every good thing you have. And God's not going to be for you. And God's going to 
going to bring all this hardship and so all these all these lies of the devil and I, I just want to emphasize those things those things are not true those are not true the Christian life is a life overflowing with love and joy now now sometimes we Christians don't don't show that very well but that that is reality and and it's not this isn't just something preachers say I, you you can talk to these other christians here there's a hundred other christians here today you could ask them what there's christians that have known the lord for for 40 years or more here you ask them is this true joy unspeakable and full of glory is this true in your life as a christian and i think you'll get you'll get the same response christians will say yeah it really is. It's been a joyful thing to serve the Lord. No Christian says, oh, I wish I'd put this off. You know, I wished I'd waited till I was on my deathbed and then become a Christian. Nobody says that. Instead, they say just the opposite. They say, oh, why did it take so long for me to come to Christ? I, w- I wish I'd become a Christian when I was five years old and serve the Lord my whole life instead of wasting all those years in, in sinful, shameful things. Oh, it's a life of joy and glory to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. What a precious Savior He is for sinners. What glorious invitation is extended to sinners in the Gospel. He promises life, abundant life. He promises living water. Living water. He promises. He says, if you're thirsty, come to Me and drink. He says, if you're hungry, come to Me. I'm the living bread. The bread that came down from heaven. Satisfy yourself with me if you're weary and heavy laden come to me and i'll give you rest there's joy there's glory in knowing the lord jesus christ oh if you're not a christian i wish i wish you could taste and see that the lord is good i wish i wish i wish you would taste of him i wish you would lay down you'd lay down your sin and your rebellion and just give your whole life to christ just flee to Him. Just, just call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved, the Bible says. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Oh, we urge you to come to Christ, to enter into this life of knowing such a Savior as the Lord Jesus. That's a word to you that are not Christians. What about us then who are Believers, I said at the beginning that this verse challenges our experience. That, that this verse makes, makes me feel like, boy, I'm falling short. My, my Christianity is not measuring up to what I see in the Bible. And, and what I would expect that, that many of us would say is something like this. Say, say, yes, I do love the Lord. I do believe in the gospel, I do have faith. I, I do have some joy in Him. I do have some. I, I do. I have had some really special times of joy with the Lord. I can remember that. But at the same time, we we'd have to admit. I think most of us would that 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 we don't feel this much of the time. That our our joy still ebbs and flows. That there's there's big difference in in the intensity of our experience. I. I imagine most of us could relate to those, the words in that William Cooper hymn, 
Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint. But the next verse, yet I love thee and adore. Oh, for grace to love thee more. I mean, isn't that how we feel? On, on the one hand, you, you see these things and say, say, Lord, I'm falling short. I'm not walking in the glory like I should. But on the other hand, you say, but Lord, I do love you. There is some love there. There is some reality there. And Lord, I bless you for that. Thank you. Thank you for the reality I do have. So I, I hope this verse to us is not just, is not just something that kind of convicts us, that makes you feel this sense, well, I'm just falling short, I'm not doing it right. But I hope the verse can be, can be an encouragement, can be a sense of what, what's available, what there is there, and the, what the Christian life can be, should be, what, what these, these ordinary first century Christians we're experiencing and walking in. There's, there's far more of the Lord for us to walk in than we've experienced so far. There, there's, more, there's more ground to be gained. There's more, there's more to be taken, more to be enjoyed of Him even here in this life. And so, so that to me is very encouraging. There's, there, there's so much. There's so much there. Uh, it's joy, joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let it be more, more true in our experience. Let it be that way this week, this year in our Christian life, that we might be filled with more joy than ever before. That the joy of the Lord would be our strength. That the Lord would, would, would fill us with His joy and enable us to do His work. Amen.